How did you happen to get in here? I ran here. You scared the daylights out of me last night. Seems like the truth shouldn't scare anybody, man or boy. everyone and welcome to when it was cool dark i'm your host carl stern thank you very much for joining me this show is produced and distributed by when it was cool.com it's part of the when it was cool podcasting network and this show can be heard at wrestlingobserver.com figure4online.com dark matter digital network when it was cool.com and all major podcasting apps i encourage you to take your favorite podcasting app type in the words when it was cool You'll see our three main shows, When It Was Cool Dark, When It Was Cool Retro Pop Culture, and When It Was Cool Wrestling, and I hope you will subscribe to all three. If you like what you hear, visit whenitwascool.com and become a Patreon supporter. That's how these shows get produced. You'll also get instant access to over 2,000 shows in our archive immediately. So thank you very much for supporting us. We're in part of a series called 100 of the Darkest Moments in Pop Culture History. And uh, we're getting very late in the series now. Uh, We're getting very near the end. We've been talking about dark moments in pop culture history, things that have negatively impacted and reflected on popular culture over the years. And uh, once we get finished with this series... The uh, direction of the show is going to change. It's going to go into a different direction. And uh, we're kind of going back to our roots. But we'll have more on that coming up in future episodes. I would uh, pay attention to perhaps some cryptic messages that may be playing throughout these shows. We're going to do something really, really interesting coming up that some of you, I think, are very much uh, going to find, uh, find fun and informative. Now let's talk about one of the darkest moments in pop culture history, which uh, to me this is uh, unquestionably one of those. It is, I don't know that there has been a downfall of a pop culture figure any more spectacular than that of Lance Armstrong. I mean, he went from beloved American sports figure, beloved worldwide sports figure, to, well, uh, disgraced star and it happened in spectacular fashion i mean he even had cancer which you know in a lot to people i had cancer myself stage three colon cancer i had a, a heck of a battle went through chemo radiation surgery all all that and uh well even after that i mean his fall was so spectacular that it impacted that i mean he had a huge fundraising organization and it's just, it's really a sad, sad story of a fall of a sports icon. And I want to begin today's show with a look at a, actually a, uh, like a educational paper about it. I mean, my goodness, when they're, when they're uh, actually uh, putting up case studies about you on uh, educational websites, you, you've done something. I mean, a lot of times you've, you've discovered something. You've made a breakthrough in some sort of scientific field or 
or <laughs> there's if you're you're part of a website called or a, a paper called Ethics Unwrapped, well, maybe not so good. I want to direct you to ethicsunwrapped.utexas.edu. Yes, ethicsunwrapped.utexas.edu. Uh, you'll see if you. you Think, like to know more about this. There are uh, similar cases. There are uh, other things you can discover, even a downloadable PDF of this uh, case study, all this. But this gives us a good little look into, well, just what we're talking about here. It is, uh, it is something else. Lance Armstrong was once an icon. In 1993, he became the professional world champion of Union Cycliste Internationale Road World Championship. In 1996, at the age of 25, he was diagnosed with advanced testicular cancer. He was free of cancer by 1997 and, in that same year, founded the non-profit organization the Lance Armstrong Foundation, now known as the Live Strong Foundation, to support cancer patients and others affected by cancer. Hey, that's me. This organization went on to raise nearly $400 million through the sale of, hey, remember this? I mean, this was a big deal in pop culture. You saw them everywhere, those yellow Live Strong bracelets uh, through those and other fundraising efforts. A lot of money, $400 million. Between 1999 and 2005, Lance Armstrong achieved an unprecedented seven consecutive wins of the Tour de France. But shadowing the success were allegations that he had used banned performance-enhancing drugs. After an investigation by the United States Anti-Doping Agency in 2012, evidence of Armstrong's doping activities was verified. He was banned from Olympic sports for life and stripped of his seven Tour de France titles. So, a major, major deal. In fact, many people, I would say the, the lay person out there, lay person out there probably can't even name you another cyclist. If you walked up to the average person on the street and said, name me a competitive cyclist, Lance Armstrong's <laughs> probably the first name they know, maybe perhaps the only name they know. The paper continues. In a 2013 televised interview with Oprah Winfrey, Lance Armstrong admitted for the first time to using banned performance-enhancing drugs for years. Armstrong noted that he did so to remain competitive because other cyclists were also doping. The definition of cheat is to gain an advantage on a rival or foe that they don't have, Armstrong told Oprah Winfrey. I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as a level playing field. He was not alone. Doping had become common in many sports during the 1990s. During the seven years that Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France, 20 out of the 21 top three finishers were also found to have doped at some point in their careers. Lance Armstrong also encouraged his teammates on the U.S. cycling team to use performance-enhancing drugs and match his performance. The investigation into Armstrong's doping revealed how extensive his use of drugs was, how he developed a system to maintain secrecy, and how his teammates were pressured into doping as well. 
The report from the anti-doping agency's investigation stated, quote, it was not enough that his teammates give maximum effort on the bike. He also required that they adhere to the doping program outlined for them or be replaced. He was not just a part of the doping culture on his team. He enforced and reinforced it. The agency also reported, Furthermore, Lance Armstrong acted with the help of a small army of enablers, including doping doctors, drug smugglers, and others within and outside the sport and on his team. Teammate Christian Vandy, uh, or excuse me, Christian Vandeveld, described a confrontation with Lance Armstrong in which Armstrong threatened Vandeveld's position on the team if he did not follow drug, the drug program. Vandeville stated that team doctor Luis Garcia del Moral, quote, would run into the room and you would quickly find a needle in your arm, referring to the injection as vitamins. In the wake of Armstrong's admission to doping, all sponsors cut ties with him. Armstrong estimated he lost $75 million in a single day from his loss of sponsorship. The Livestrong Foundation also asked him to resign from its board. In a 2015 interview, when asked about his use of banned performance-enhancing drugs, Armstrong stated, quote, If I was racing in 2015, no, I wouldn't do it again, because I don't think you have to do it again. If you take me back to 1995, when it was completely and totally pervasive, I would probably do it again. People don't like to hear that. Well, I would say probably not, and uh, hard to... Hard, <laughs> hard to uh, hardly call that a repentant attitude. Nevertheless, few individuals are more competitive than Lance Armstrong, but his desire to win led him to the use of banned performance-enhancing drugs. When people omit ethical considerations from their frame of reference and focus only upon material goals such as victory and fame, they can make very poor ethical decisions. Indeed, Lance Armstrong uh, fra uh, framed his decision to use the banned drugs in relationship to the Tour de France, and ethical considerations were omitted from his frame of reference. Because his competitors were also doping, he did not see the use of these drugs as cheating, but as a way of leveling the playing field. In the end, Armstrong lost millions in sponsorship, his cycling titles were stripped from him, and he was forced to resign from the nonprofit organization he founded. And uh, then the article uh, goes on to ask some, some uh, discussion questions. And I, I, I want to come back to these as it is a great way of framing uh, the ethics of this situation. We'll, we will come back to that uh, on our second half of the show and look at that. But let's take a look at the uh, particulars of this situation. Uh, the Lance Armstrong case was a major doping investigation. It led uh, to retired American road racing cyclist Lance Armstrong being stripped of his seven consecutive Tour de France titles, along with one Olympic medal, and his eventual admission to using performance-enhancing drugs. United States Anti-Doping Agency, commonly called by its initials USADA, portrayed Armstrong as the ringleader of what it called the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping scandal that the sport had ever seen. 
For much of his career, Lance Armstrong faced faced, uh, persistent allegations of doping. But until 2006, no official investigation was undertaken. The first break in the case came in 2005 when SCA Promotions, a Dallas-based insurer, balked at paying a $5 million bonus to Armstrong for winning his sixth consecutive Tour de France. SCA President Bob Hammond had read L.A. Confidential, a book by cycling journalists Pierre Ballester and David Walsh, which detailed circumstantial evidence of massive doping by Armstrong and members of his U.S. Postal Service pro-cycling team. In 2006, an arbitration panel ruled that SCA had to pay the bonus. However, Hammond's real goal was to force an investigation by sports authorities, believing that if someone in a position to investigate the matter found that Armstrong had indeed doped, he could be stripped of his tour victories, allowing SCA to get its money back. His hunch proved correct. Officials from the United States Anti-Doping Agency asked to review the evidence Hammond had gleaned. So, as we can see here, money talks. When there's money involved, things get done, right? This had perhaps less to do with ethics and more to do with the bottom line. However, it turns out they're not wrong in this assertion, right? U.S. federal prosecutors pursued allegations of doping by Lance Armstrong from 2010 to 2012. The effort convened a grand jury to investigate doping charges, including taking statements under oath from Lance Armstrong's former team members and other associates. They met with officials from France, Belgium, Spain, and Italy and requested samples from the French Anti-Doping Agency. The investigation was led by federal agent Jeff Novinsky who also investigated suspicions of steroid use by baseball players Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Armstrong's former teammate, Floyd Landis, was a key witness in the criminal investigation, and according to the book Will Men, Landis at one point wore a recording device and used a video camera disguised as a cheap keychain at the investigator's request in an attempt to gather evidence against a team owner in California. However, based on testimony from Landis, the prosecutors soon turned their attention to Lance Armstrong and the doping that took place on the U.S. Postal Service team years earlier. As part of his campaign to clear his name from allegations of doping, uh, Armstrong hired a Washington lobbying firm in 2010 to raise concerns about Novinsky, according to a story in the Wall Street Journal. The firm worked for Armstrong for about three months, but after arranging meetings on Capitol Hill, decided a full-scale lobbying effort would not have worked. Well, this is getting dirty, right? (laughs) On many levels, pun intended. On February 2nd, 2012, federal prosecutors officially dropped their criminal investigation with no charges. The closing of the case by the U.S. Attorney Andre Bertoli Jr. was not without controversy, with the decision coming as a surprise to many. In October of 2012, uh, Vela News announced they had filed a Freedom of Information Act request regarding the two-year Armstrong investigation and its dismissal. So this leads into the 2011 to 2012 USADA investigation. Uh, where now USADA is getting involved. USADA accused Armstrong of doping and drug trafficking based on blood samples from 2009-2010 and testimony from witnesses, including former teammates. 
Armstrong, denying all doping use in a statement, was suspended from competition in cycling and triathlon. He was charged in a letter from USADA along with five others, including former team manager uh, Johan Brontno. USADA said Armstrong used banned substances, including the blood booster uh, epinephrine uh, and steroids, as well as blood transfusions dating all the way back to 1996. And when we come back after our mid-show break here, we'll uh, talk about uh, what happened, what they end up doing. As we know, he gets he gets banned. He gets a big-time ban. We'll talk about all that and much more as we take a look at one of the 100 darkest moments in pop culture history, the Lance Armstrong doping scandal. And 370. Input. Dr. Jim Tour, Rice University. Organic chemist. I do not know how to use science to prove intelligent design although some others might. I am sympathetic to the arguments and I find some of them intriguing, but I prefer to be free of that label. As a modern day scientist, I do not know how to prove intelligent design using my most sophisticated analytical tools. All I can presently say is that my chemical tools do not permit my assessment of intelligent design. However, it is clear, chemists and biologists are clueless. Those who think scientists understand the issues of prebiotic chemistry are wholly misinformed. Maybe one day we will. But that day is far from today. The basis upon which we as scientists are relying is so shaky that we must openly state the situation for what it is, it is a mystery. The information or coding within the DNA or RNA that corresponds to the sequence of the nucleic acids is primary to the entire discussion of life. Information is even more fundamental than the matter upon which it is encoded. Requisite molecules such as lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, and carbohydrates are so unlikely to have occurred in the states and quantities needed that we could never have gotten to the point of figuring out the genesis of the requisite code or information. Concerning evolution, some are disconcerted or even angered that I signed a statement in 2001 along with many other scientists stating, We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. And. 371. Dark. So as it turns out, USADA is having none of this after the uh, federal criminal investigation is dropped. On August 24, 2012, the UCI requested that USADA issue a, quote, reasoned decision explaining why the agency felt Armstrong should be stripped of his titles. Uh, as previously, previously mentioned, uh, Lance Armstrong believed that by not contesting the charges, the evidence against him collected by USADA would never become public. So in basically what happened, just to summarize it, Lance Armstrong didn't contest this, hoping, again, that it would just kind of be swept under the rug. Uh, public would never get a uh, uh, wind of this. He would lose his sponsorships and things like that. That is not what happened. In the wake of a particularly acrimonious battle with Tyler Hamilton in 2005, USADA had amended its bylaws so it could publicly speak about the details of its case in order to correct the record. USADA set 
about uh, getting affidavits regarding Armstrong's doping from witnesses in the case and secured permission from their lawyers to make it public. On October 10th, 2012, USADA published the details of its investigation. In a 200-page report accompanied by over 1,000 pages of supporting evidence, so obviously a well-cited study, the report included testimonies from 11 former Armstrong teammates and 15 other witnesses. It portrayed Armstrong as the mastermind of what it described as, quote, the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program the sport has ever seen. The report detailed numerous blood test results that proved Armstrong was guilty of blood doping, as well as over $1 million in payments uh, to pay off uh, Ferrari. Uh, it, contend, it contended that the normal eight-year statute of limitations for doping offenses did not apply because of Armstrong's fraudulent concealment of his doping. Lance Armstrong, USADA said, could not be allowed to benefit from the statute when he lied under oath in both the SCA case and the French investigation, intimidated witnesses, and submitted affidavits that he knew were false. Long-standing precedent in U.S. courts hold that the statute of limitations does not apply when a defendant engages in fraudulent acts. Among the witnesses who testified to USADA were Frankie and Betsy Andrew, who repeated the testimony they gave in the SCA case. Landis and Hamilton repeated allegations made over the preceding years. Statements were also taken from former teammates, including uh, Greg uh, Heinkepel, uh, Levi Lenapier, and Michael Barry, all of whom confessed to doping during their careers as well as witnessing Armstrong using performance-enhancing drugs. Before its release, Armstrong's legal representative, Tim Herman, described the USADA reasoned decision as, quote, a one-sided hatchet job, a taxpayer-funded tabloid piece rehashing old, disproven, and unreliable allegations based largely on axe grinders, serial perjurers, coerced testimony, sweetheart deals, and threatened induced stories. Wow, they were not putting, they were laying the hammer to USADA here. <laughs> That's not going to work out for them. On October 12th, the UCI announced that it would not appeal USADA's decision to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, meaning it had accepted USADA's sanctions of a lifetime ban for Lance Armstrong and stripping of all results since October 1st, 1998, including his seven Tour de France victories. UCI President Pat McQuaid remarked that he was, quote, sickened by the USADA report, particularly how the U.S. Postal Team officials coerced one of Armstrong's teammates, uh, David Zabraski, into taking EPO, a drug. Uh, he added, Lance Armstrong has no place in cycling. He deserves to be forgotten in cycling. Something like this must never happen again. The day following the UCI decision, Lance Armstrong deleted references to his tour wins from his Twitter biography. Boy, we all know Twitter's a real place, right? On November 2nd, the World Anti-Doping Agency confirmed that it would not appeal the USADA decision. On January 17, 2013, the International Olympic Committee removed Armstrong's results from the 2000 Summer Olympics from its record books and requested the return of his bronze medals from that uh, time trial, which we won the bronze medals there. Wow, bad news when you're sending your medals back to the 
to the Olympics, right? And there were many others. I mean, there were many other uh, titles being stripped, many other sanctions uh, being laid down. So what was what was his role in this? Did he say, I'm sorry? Did he, you know, what, what did he do? Before we get to these ethical questions to ask ourselves about the situation. Well, on January 4th, 2013, the New York Times reported that Lance Armstrong had told associates and anti-doping officials that he was considering publicly admitting having used banned performance-enhancing drugs and blood transfusions during his cycling career. Armstrong's attorney, Tim Herman, denied the report and told the Associated Press, quote, when and if Lance has something to say, there won't be any secret about it. More upsetting to many were reports that he forced others to dope, even to be on the team. In a televised interview with Oprah Winfrey, the very famous Oprah Winfrey uh, interview, this was on January 13, 2013. It was broadcast in two parts. Lance Armstrong finally confessed to using performance-enhancing drugs throughout most of his career, including all seven tour wins. During the interview, he stated that his, quote, mythic perfect story was one big lie. He attributed his denials to being, quote, a guy who expected to get whatever he wanted and control every outcome. The Associated Press and other media reported that Armstrong had made an apology to Livestrong staff prior to his interview with Winfrey. Well, at least he, he did that. He said that while doping, he neither felt that it was wrong nor felt bad about what he was doing. He also insisted that it was, quote, absolutely not true that he used performance-enhancing drugs during his 2009-2010 comeback seasons and claimed the last time where he, quote, crossed the line was in 2005. Marcora wrote that Armstrong decided to admit his doping because he knew he would be questioned under oath about it in the False Claims Act suit filed by Landis. He was also concerned about the toll it was taking on his kids. As Marcoeur put it, Lance Armstrong wanted to confess on his own terms. So again, maybe not as clear-cut and as uh, apologetic as it would seem on the surface. ESPN gives us a timeline of Lance Armstrong's career successes, doping, allegations, and his final uh, collapse in an article they put on their uh, ESPN ESPN website. Uh, this was for their 30 for 30 series uh, entitled Lance. If you want to check out a 30 for 30 series by ESPN, very, very good sports documentaries. This was from May 22nd of 2020 and uh, goes through all the way back to uh, 1997. Uh, he established Lance Armstrong Foundation, which later become known as Live Strong. In 1999, at age 27, he returns to professional cycling and wins his first uh, Tour de France. In 2000, he won his second Tour de France. 2001, the third. 2002, his fourth. 2003, again the fifth time. Record-setting sixth time in 2004. 2005, at the age of 33, after winning a seventh Tour de France, uh, Armstrong retires to spend more time with his family. 
French newspapers report blood samples retested from the 1999 race show evidence of blood doping that year, but Armstrong denies the allegations. Quote, if you consider my situation, a guy who comes back from arguably, you know, a death sentence, why would I then enter into a sport and dope myself up and risk my life again? That's crazy, he told CNN. I would never do that. No, no way. Well, turns out, maybe, yes way. Um, all the way up through uh, the, kind of the, the, the last few things on this timeline they have. 2011, Armstrong again uh, announces his retirement from competitive cycling in February at age 39 to focus on his family and his career foundation, or his, his cancer foundation. But the walls uh, obscuring his past, use of performance-enhancing drugs, are cracking. Two other U.S. Postal Service team members come forward acknowledging their own uh, use of performance-enhancing drugs. In 2012, federal prosecutors dropped their criminal investigation against him and uh, with no charges filed. However, USADA picks up, and we talked about that story there. And then the uh, the last entry in ESPN's timeline is the 2013 Oprah Winfrey interview where he finally admits to doping during each Tour de France win from 1999 through 2005. Quote, this story was so perfect for so long. It's this myth, this perfect story, and it wasn't true. I viewed the situation as one big lie that I repeated a lot of times, and as you said, it wasn't as if I just said no and I moved off it. Now, I think it's uh, interesting if we go back now to this educational paper, this uh, ethicsunwrap.utexas.edu. And uh, take a look and kind of consider for a moment. They have actually uh, ten questions here. We won't go through all of them, but let's let's do think about a couple of them here. How did Lance Armstrong's uh, fa- uh, frame? Excuse me. How did Lance Armstrong frame his decision to use banned performance enhancing drugs? And why do you think Lance Armstrong framed it in this way? How would you have framed those choices and why? And again, you know. Uh, by the framework they're talking about, you know, hey, the everybody else is doing it defense, which he is the kind of the first thing he put up. Well, everybody else is doing it. How did Armstrong's framing of doping affect his colleagues, including teammates and doctors? Why do you think his teammates continue to take drugs even if they resisted? And, and uh, you know, that's a very interesting question. Again, you've got this celebrity cyclist, the best in the sport there. Uh, certainly these people are going to, to feel pressured to use these drugs. You've got a whole network of folks. Doctors are going to feel, uh, and I'm, I, look, as you know, if you've been listening to these shows for a long time, we cover a lot of, we've covered in the past a lot of stuff about cancer, my cancer. My wife uh, has, has uh, struggled with mental health issues her whole life. I have no love for some doctors in the medical system, Okay. Uh, I've, I've worked through the entire opioid epidemic as a law enforcement officer. These doctors, there are many, many great ones, good hearts, and there are a lot of them that are money-driven, terrible human beings. So, you know, 
are some of these felt pressured into doing this? Feel like, hey, you know, kind of the celebrity center. We've seen this in professional wrestling, the Chris Benoit story. Uh, they, uh, you know, Dr. George Zaharian, famously, uh, you know, basically an open open drug dealer there for the uh, WWF at the time, now WWE, when they went through their whole uh, uh, federal scandal with uh, with steroids. Look, uh, where do the ethically where do these doctors fall? Uh, are they pressured into this uh, for fear of losing their clientele? Or are they, uh, you know, starstruck by these celebrities? Well, how do you feel about some of their input into this? In the 2013 interview with Oprah Winfrey, Armstrong stated that he was leveling the playing field because many others were also doping. Do you think his reasons for doping were ethically justified? Why or why not? And this is kind of a great question. I mean, if you're, uh, for one thing, number one, you don't have to compete in this sport. I mean, it's, it's, you can do anything with your life, you know? It's not that you're trapped and can do nothing other than cycle. You can uh, do other things to earn a living. Uh, so, there is that out. But if you are invested in that, your whole life's been wrapped up in it, you're an athlete, you've, you've, uh, you know, your whole, everything you've done in life has led you up to this moment, and you feel like the, everybody else is, has a unfair advantage if you play clean, how does that work? I mean, do you, you know, how ethically, what do you do there? Do you, uh, you know, do you some UFC fighters? I mean, this is USADA has been involved in a lot of uh, UFC uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship mixed martial arts uh, scandals and discussions about uh, performance enhancing drugs. And there have been many fighters who have stood up and said, "Hey, uh, these other guys are doping. We want something done and put pressure on people like USADA and these state athletic commissions to uh, do more intensive testing." But then the testing's got to be reliable also. And there have been some questions about that, too. Let's just be honest. Uh, there's been some some uh, disproportionate uh, disproportionate penalties for some results out there as well. So everybody's got to get on a level playing field. And ethically, I think that, that question raises some, uh, that's a good question. It raises some interesting uh, things to think about. If you were an athlete and became aware of a teammate's use of banned performance-enhancing drugs, what would you do and why? What if telling someone put you at risk of losing your position on the team? So that's a that's a very interesting, that's a very tough uh, ethical question to have. Hey, I mean, many people are from the mind your own business school of doing that. I'm I'm one of those, you know. In most batters, I'm of the mind your own business type deal. Uh, that doesn't necessarily live, you know, lead to a level playing field. It can also lead to all sorts of other problems. So, what, what ethically, what is the right thing to do here? I think it's very interesting. Armstrong's case demonstrates the pitfalls of several biases and behaviors, including conformity bias, groupthink. Well, we've talked about that a lot on this show, and we're going to talk a lot more about it coming up uh, when this show reboots. Keep that term in mind: group think and obedience to authority Mm. let me just read that first part again and you maybe tuck that away in your hat for the when it was cool dark reboot the pitfalls of several biases and behaviors including conformity bias group think and obedience to authority 
Maybe you should do some homework coming up. Can you identify these and other behavioral ethic concepts at work in this case study? So very interesting. Very, uh, I mean, this is a very ethically fraught uh, sort of thing. Uh, a, I mean, the standout in a sport, the, uh, you know, I don't know correctly how to uh, make analogies to what Lance Armstrong was to world of cycling. You think maybe Michael Jordan in, in basketball or something like that, Babe Ruth in baseball. He's, he's the name uh, you most associate with that sport. Again, you know, quick, name me four other cyclists. Uh, I can't even name you one. I'm not that into cycling. Maybe some of you are, some of you can, but Lance Armstrong almost certainly comes at the top of that list. And to find out that he was gaming the system, uh, taking performance-enhancing drugs, not only that, but compelling others on his team to do the same. Uh, he's obviously, whether in in title or not, he's the leader of that team because he's the most important person on that team, the most famous person on that team. All the sponsorships and stuff certainly hinged on his famous name. Pushing others on that team to use performance-enhancing drugs and, hey, let's all lie about it and let's all, you know, drag these doctors into it, drag, you know, put pressure on. Heck, we they even hired a lobbying agency to discredit the people coming after them who were correct. The people who were not lying, the people who were uh, not making this up, you know, disinformation, right? Well, we'll, you know, hang on to that. We'll be talking about that and coming up, too. You hear you see it in real world practice. So let's think about these things. This, this is a Lance Armstrong's uh, story is a very interesting study in ethics, morals, sports, and fairness. And also in lying. <laughs> let's be honest here. So that is the story of Lance Armstrong and his scandal, and I think easily this fits into our 100 darkest moments in pop culture history. It was certainly a probably the darkest moment for professional cycling in all of sports. It definitely hits on the radar as one of the most significant in American culture, in American you know um, um, sports idol culture. It's it's a it's an impactful moment. I mean, if you, when you're on Oprah Winfrey show confessing your sins. Yeah, that's pretty significant, right? So this has been When It Was Cool Dark. Thank you very much for listening. Again, uh, let me encourage you to go to our website, whenitwascool.com. Subscribe to our free shows. And uh, the most important thing you can do is become a Patreon supporter. We need to boost those Patreon numbers up there so when we relaunch this show, we can do some real good. We can do some real interesting things. Uh, this new uh, this new reboot of the show is going to require a lot of very intensive research because we want to make sure we get this right. When we get there, you'll understand. And uh, we want to do quality over quantity. So that's uh, going to necessitate uh, more Patreons. We need some more folks to come in to help us accomplish these goals. Hope you will become one. And in return... I'm going to give you instant access to over 2,000 podcasts and more. And, hey, uh, that's that's for the $1 through $5 level. If you come in at the $10 level, I'm going to uh, include in there already. It's up there for you to download immediately. If you're a professional wrestling fan, you can get a digital copy of my new book available on Amazon.com for everybody else. 
Dragon King Carl Stern's 1983 Pro Wrestling Omnibus, one of the most important years in professional wrestling history. Very, very uh, pivotal year in wrestling history. And if you're a $10 or more Patreon, you can download the digital copy of that book right now. So hope you'll support us. Come on over to whenitwascool.com, and I'll see you here again soon with another show. Excuse me, please. Let's don't talk negatively. Speaking of winners, surprise, surprise, whenitwascool.com is your home for retro pop culture articles and podcasts. To all our patron supporters, this is for you, Fannie Mae. Solid gold just like you and me. Family friendly and fun whenitwascool.com.